Welcome to the Battlefield Baptist Church Podcast. We are so glad you joined us and pray that this message is a blessing to you today. This week, Pastor Greg continued his sermon series with Temptation and Lust. Well, if you're paying attention to Travis reading the verse, I'm guessing you can guess what we're going to talk about this morning. Anybody? Temptation. Anybody struggle with stuff? Last week we talked about anger and how we struggle with anger. Today we're continuing the theme and I want to talk to you about another stuff or another, some other things that we struggle with. And quite frankly, the Bible says that we all struggle with it. It's called temptation. It's temptation and lust. And notice with me uh, this morning in James chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. And before we get there, I'd like to have a word of prayer this morning and uh, just ask God to bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you for the day that you have made. Thank you for blessing us with the ability to be in your house. Certainly, God, we pray for those that aren't able to make it here today, those who may be sick, those that are out of town, or those that just for whatever reason were unable or hindered to be here to worship you. God, we pray that you be with them and encourage their hearts on this day as well. Father, I pray for those that are in this room that we might clear the mechanism, so to speak, that we might put away the cares of this world, that we might focus in on what you have to say today. And certainly it's very easy for us to be distracted. It's easy for us to be, cons- to be concerned with the things that are pleasing or concerning to our own selves. But God, let's this morning be concerned with what concerns you. Father, I pray that you use your word, that you will challenge us, that you will encourage us to be more like Christ. God, I pray that you will have the honor and the glory this day and everything that's said or done. God, I pray that if there's someone in this room that has never trusted Christ as their Savior, that today might be the day that they do that as well. And Father, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the honor and the glory for it all. In Jesus' precious name and for his sake, amen and amen. Today we're going to talk about temptation and lust. And so guys, if you'll put up the passage. Now this, this passage of scripture, remember uh, about a year or so ago we talked about forgiveness and, and some other things. We were talking about family and we used this passage to talk about our communication. If you remember that, we were talking about proper communication in the home. And if you notice, this passage works in a number of ways. But notice what James says. He says, let no man say, and you can see the way I've drawn it. He says, let no man say when he is tempted that I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. Now, it's important to understand that what James is saying here, when he uses the phrase man, he's speaking of man, woman, boy, or girl. It's in the neutered sense, okay? And so it references everybody. It's not just a message today. I know the ladies would love for this to be a message to their husbands or or to their children or whatever. This is a message for all of us. It says, neither tempteth he any man, but every man, every individual is tempted. So the reality is we can see the progression here, but every man is tempted. Now notice the progression. There's three progressions, and that's the word when, every time. When he is drawn away of his own lust. That's the character of our temptation, right? You see, the character, its nature, is that when you and I are drawn away of our own lust, it takes over. The second progression is seen in verse number 15. It says, then when lust hath conceived. 
Well, when temptation, there comes a lust or a desire, a pulling away. And when it's conceived, the Bible says that it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. And so there's a progression here of temptation that we see in this very short passage of Scripture that's important for us to understand. Now, we also need to understand some ground rules when we talk about temptation. Temptation is universal. It's universal. You're sitting here this morning, you're listening to a podcast, you are under the same rules here in this passage. It says everyone, every man is tempted. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you may remember this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse number 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to men. And so we understand the ground rules. Temptation is universal. Temptation is a personal matter. It's like everything. Last week I said, I can't deal with my wife's anger. My wife has to deal with her anger. I I have to deal with my own anger issues, right? I have to deal with my own temptation issues just like she has to deal with her own temptation issues. It's a very personal matter. Everybody's tempted. It's a personal matter. And then thirdly, what we see is that our failures when it comes to temptation and lust, they actually bring consequences. Because the Bible says then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it actually brings forth death. I think about uh, Adam and Eve, and I'll reference them again here in a moment of time. But some will argue that the struggle with temptation and lust is God's fault. You remember, that's what Adam and Eve did. Remember, after they sinned in the Garden of Eden, God comes looking for them and, and says, Where are you? <laughs> Like as if God doesn't know where they're at. Uh, Where are you at? And Adam says, we were hiding because we're naked. God says, how do you know that you're naked? Because they had sinned. See, their eyes were open. They, They had been blinded by sin, but now they could see things from a different perspective. But you remember what Adam said. The very first thing that Adam says to God, he says, the woman that thou gavest me. What does he do? He, he, he blames. It's like you ever see those shirts with the finger, I'm with dummy. And people used to always, I used to see people walking in the mall with them back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, that tells you a little bit how old I am. It's like, I'm with dummy, and then there was another finger pointing up, no, I'm with stupid or whatever. It, it was one of those things. This is Adam. He says, the woman that thou gavest me, she gave me the fruit. It's not my fault, God. You actually made her. You actually gave her to me. You caused me to sleep. You opened up the flesh. You took the rib thereof. You made woman. You woke me up, and here she is. So it's your fault. I knew your law, God. I wasn't tempted. She was tempted. And what's Eve do? Adam blames Eve, and then Eve says, her, her thing says, the serpent did it. It was the serpent's fault. That, that serpent that you made, by the way, He was walking around and he says, hey, surely you would not die if you eat of the fruit. And so it's his fault. And so we see some of the progressions of our temptation and sin, but there's a twofold negative stance. If you can throw that verse back up, and let's just leave it up for a second. There's a twofold thing that I want you to see, and that's number one, that God is not temptable. God does not, he is not temptable, and God does not tempt Now, here's the thing to understand. God does test us. God will put you to the test. God will put you through the fire sometimes. But God never tempts. He puts us to the test. Satan, the devil, remember? 
I said, there's one who cares for us in this series, and there's one who doesn't. <clears throat> Casting our care on him, for he careth for us. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. There's one who cares for us, and there's one who doesn't. And so the devil, he tempts, God tests. But sadly, most of our problems in life come from listening to the strong desires of the flesh. And folks, there's something I've learned in my few years of life. Our flesh is flawed. Our flesh is flawed. That's why there was sin in the first place. Adam and Eve sinned because their flesh led them to sin. They were, yes, Eve was beguiled. She was deceived. But she was drawn away when she looked at the tree. She said, she looked at the tree and said, man, it's good looking. I want what's on that tree. But God has said, if I eat of it, I'll surely die. And the, de and the devil, that old serpent said, you're not going to die. God's just telling you that story. He's trying to get you all tripped up. And she takes the fruit. You know the rest of the story. She eats and she gives it to Adam. Most of our problems come from listening to our flesh that's flawed. Notice in verse 14 the phrase there, drawn away. Those phrase, that phrase actually means to be enticed, to be dragged forth, to be pulled away from safety. The other word there that we see is the word enticed. And this is a hunting and fishing kind of illustration here when you look at James chapter 1. That word enticed means to be entrapped, to be deceived, to be decepted, or to be lured as a trapper. Now to be a successful fisherman, we know a couple of things. <clears throat> if you've ever been fishing, or maybe you love to fish, maybe you don't. Uh, I like trout fishing. Uh, usually a lot of fun, and uh, you know, you're not literally just sitting there you know, waiting for the bob to drop. And so it's a little bit different. Um, fly fishing, some other things like that. Deep sea fishing. Those are all great things to go and do. But there's a couple of things that you need to know when you go fishing. Number one, you need to know what the fish are eating. You need to understand what the fish are eating. And guess what? Not only what they're eating, what, how does it draw their attention? Have you ever seen somebody go fishing and they take a... Uh, an artificial lure. And I've seen people mount an artificial lure on a hook in a number of ways, like even a jelly worm. Some will leave it and let it dangle so that, so that the tail of that worm dangles as it goes through the water. Some, I've seen them coil it up more like, almost like a, a knot and then drop it in like that. And so there's a number of ways, but the key is understanding what they're eating and what draws their attention. Regrettably, though, in a negative sense, the devil is a lot like a fisherman. He finds out what draws our attention. And you know what? It's different for every one of us. Now, we may have similarities. There may be similarities. There may be some of us in this room that struggle with the same temptations. But the devil knows how you struggle and the ways in which you struggle. So he finds out what draws us. He prepares the lure, and the lure's name is lust. What is it that we lust at? And so there's the stages of fishing that we know. Uh, one, there's the casting of the lure. I remember when I was a little kid, I always got in trouble when it came to casting the lure. So my dad, he would cast the lure. Why? Because I would cast it and get it stuck in the, in the tree or in the bush. Or invariably, I don't even know how it happened, but invariably there was always a log under the water that always seemed to catch my hook. And I would be like, oh, I got a big one. I got a big one. And my dad would say, stop, 
And I would say, what? He says, you're going to break the rod. And I was just pulling, pulling with all my might. We have to learn how to cast. You know, uh, the devil knows how to cast the lure. And he's not in a hurry. You see, he's going to cast the lure. And what he does, he has discipline. He just sits there and he waits. He can't read our minds. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. But he can read our responses. Think about that. He doesn't read our minds, but he most definitely reads our responses. And so we have the casting of the lure. We also have the working of the lure. You know, it's like a fly fisherman snaps it in and out, in and out. The devil is going to make some type of a splash in our life. Whatever's necessary to get your attention is exactly what he's going to use in your circumstance. And then the third stage of fishing is the strike. When the fish takes the bait, do you know that I've learned over the years that the fish doesn't actually realize that there's a hook? Right? He takes the bait, takes the bait, and starts to fish or starts to swim away. Why? Doesn't know there's any hook in, in, the, in, the, in the lure or in that food or what you're using. It is only once the fish takes the bait and you snap back on that rod that you set the hook. Now, once the hook is set, we all know from experience that the fishing, the fishing life or for the, for the fish's life is coming to a close. It's, it's the fight that comes in. And, and a lot of people like to fish and they like to go deep sea fishing because of the fight, because of the, because of the, the challenge of reeling the big fish in. But the reality is when it comes to temptation or lust, it doesn't matter how much we thrash. It doesn't matter how much we splash. Once the devil has set the hook, we are in trouble. And so the progression of lust and temptation and lust can be seen in our text. In fact, look at verse number 15 here. In verse number 15 it says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bring forth sin, and when it is finished, it bring forth death. So you see that we have lust, which is the word epithumia, epithumia, which actually it means to covet. It means a strong desire. It means a longing. It means a strong desire to covet or a longing. And so this epithumia goes to the word hamartia, which is the New Testament Greek word for sin, which means to miss the mark. It references our disobedience in a sense, right? And so we have this, this lust that moves to sin. And then you have the last word, which is thanatos, which means death. And it actually references just as Adam's sin brought death and spiritual death and physical death and moral death into the world... This lust, sin, brings the fruit of sinfulness into our life. And so we see this. And right about now, I guess everybody in the room is real quiet because we're thinking about other things. I think everybody's a little bit quiet also because as soon as we say the word temptation and lust, the idea is to think, oh, he's talking about physical lust or sexual lust. Lust comes in many different shapes. And sizes. And we see it all through scripture. And sir, ma'am, you may not struggle with physical lust, but maybe you struggle with a lust of money. Maybe you struggle with the lust of power. Maybe you struggle with the lust of prestige. Maybe you struggle with a different type of lust. But what I know is temptation becomes lust. We're drawn away from our, 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 ourselves when we see the lure of lust and it wreaks havoc in our lives. You see, the word lust refers to any desire or strong desire in our heart. This may include the pursuit of something wrong or the neglect 
of something that is right. I have a strong desire not to do what's right today. I have a strong desire to be filled with my concerns and my thoughts, God, so I'm not interested in your thoughts. That's a problem for the disciple of Jesus Christ because we're to die to self, as I was talking about in our Sunday school hour. See, it may be even something neutral or actually good. In fact, there's several instances in Scripture where lust is seen in a good sense. But most of the time, if we're honest with ourselves, when we think about temptation and lust in our own lives, it's typically not in a good sense. It's typically not in a neutral sense. It's usually in a negative sense. Remember, as I was talking to you about when we had our family series, the heart drives everything we do. So we're drawn away and enticed of our own lust. Remember, I was talking to you in reference to our communication. The way we communicate with one another is driven by the lust of the heart, right? And so everything is motivated by desire. Our heart is motivated by desire. In fact, the desire of our heart also determines our actions. Remember when I talked about communication, I said if, if, if you want to be heard, if you want to be right, if you want to just move on, then your actions will follow those desires. If your desire is to honor God through your communication, then that's going to drive your communication in a very different way. The same is true when it comes to our temptation and lust. And so we understand that the desire of our heart always, always determines our action. It always determines our action. That's why the wise man said in Proverbs 4, 23, he's writing to his son, Solomon writes these words. He says, son, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Oh, yes, when temptation comes, there's a moment of decision that we all face. Our, our actions inevitably lead to consequences. So today when we say or think about the word lust, let's not just think of it as relating to a physical desire. Because like I said, for some, we may have a lust for profit, power, position, or prestige. But maybe, maybe our lust is for personal pleasure. And so we have to understand this New Testament word lust and the idea that it references a strong desire. In fact, guys, show Luke twenty two fifteen, Because when I think about it in a strong desire, we see Jesus said, and he said unto them, with desire, that's the same word, epithumia. Epithumia, I have a strong desire. I covet the opportunity to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's a good type of lust. In fact, if you look at Philippians 1, 23, the Apostle Paul says, I'm in a straight betwixt two, having a desire. There's that word again, epithumia. I have a strong desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So these were good things. It's okay to, to desire to be with Christ. And so Paul showed us that. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he writes to the church at Thessalonica. In verse 17, he says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored by the more abundantly to see your face with great epithumia, with great desire, with great strong desire. I covet this opportunity. The point is that strong desire or lust, guys, is not inconsistent with God's word. It's not inconsistent with his plan. It's just how do we respond is what causes the problem. In the Hebrew culture, you know, uh, I, I saw Jared was teaching in his class the Shema. 
a couple weeks ago in your Sunday school class. And the idea that in the Hebrew culture, a person's life was to be totally given over to God. To love the Lord thy God. You know, I am the Lord. You know, thou shalt have no other gods before me. This idea on and on. Well, Jesus said the same thing for us, guys, in the New Testament, right? He says in Matthew 22 and Mark 12 and Luke chapter 10, he says that you and I are to love the Lord thy God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And he references also our strength. So the fact that in Hebrew culture, their strong desire was to be after the Lord their God is nothing new than what we're taught in the New Testament. To have this strong desire for God. And so we see this running all through scripture. Yes, the word and the meaning of lust in and of itself is not the problem. The problem lies with you and I when we have an unhealthy appetite. And not only an unhealthy appetite, but when we give way and obey lust. See, when we, when, when we have an unhealthy appetite for whatever is drawing us away, and then not only is our unhealthy appetite seen, but the drawing away and the enticement, but then when we obey it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I want you to see something in Scripture. In Romans chapter 6, look with me when you get there down at verse number 12. The Apostle Paul, writing here, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the, what's that word? Lusts thereof. That's epithumia. Again, the same Greek word used over and over for this idea of strong desire, this covetous desire. And he says, Let, no, let not sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 13. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, I ask the question a lot of times when I read this passage, what song is your life singing or playing right now? See, because it says, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. What is your life song singing or saying right now, today, right now? Because you can't go back and replay yesterday and you can't go back and replay 10 minutes ago. You can't go back and replay one minute ago. What is your life song singing and saying to God right now? pretty important. I think about the uh, struggle with lust all through scripture and we've already outlined Adam and Eve you know she looked at the fruit she lusted the fruit she took the fruit she ate the fruit she gave the fruit and on and on and we go through that story I think about the story of David and Bathsheba. David knows in 2 Samuel 11 you know he's not where he's supposed to be and he goes out on the rooftop you know the story he saw her he lusted for her he sends for her he sins with her, and then after he sins with her, he sends the man out to get her husband so he can sin some more. Someone has said uh, that sin, <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I'm not even going to quote it. I'll mess it up. It, you know, the idea that it will uh, uh, cost you more than you're willing to pay in the end. You know, the idea that it, 
In, in fact, I was down in Florida, Larry and Jackie and, uh, and Krista, and this one pastor said, not only will sin take you farther than you want to go, it will actually teach you more than you want to know. <laughs> I thought that was good. I was like, wow, not only is it going to take me farther than I want to go, it's going to teach me more than I actually want to know. And certainly in the end, it's going to cost me more than I'm willing to pay. And so David, we see his sin running rampant because it all starts, right? He looks down and he sees Adam and Eve, their temptation and sin and lust was very different from David's. But it was still wrong. Think about uh, Lot's wife in Genesis 19. You know the story. The angel of the Lord tells him to get out. By the way, God's going to take care of you. He's going to save you, so you get out. But what does... The angel of the Lord tell, tell them, says, don't look back. Don't look back. But we know in Genesis 19, I think it's verse number 26, that she actually looks back, lusting for what was behind instead of trusting what was ahead. Something very interesting about this, and, and I think I was talking with Jared, we were talking about it last night, is that she looks back in lust for what was behind rather than trusting what was ahead, Right? That was Sodom, right? Who looked at the land of Sodom to desire to go there? Her husband. Remember he was with Abraham? He says, oh yeah, that land over there, I strongly desire that land. I'm going this way. You can have this dry land. Right? He sees a land that looks good. He was drawn by what he saw and he went into Sodom and the same thing that drew him to the land was the same thing that drew his wife back. And the sad, horrific story of Lot's life and his wife's life is some will speculate as to her name by ancestry, but we're not told her name there in the passage. All I know is that three short verses later, after mom is turned into a pillar of salt in Genesis 19, his daughters take dad up and they give dad strong drink, fermented fruit. They get dad drunk so that they can go in and sleep with their father. Yeah, it's a horrific story of the, design, of the dangers and the consequences of sin. In Joshua chapter 7, here's another uh, story. In Joshua chapter 7, you remember Achan and all the children of Israel are told not to take of any of the spoils of war. They said, hey, don't take of any of the spoils of war. I'm going I'm to do this thing. I'm God. I'm in control, right? I'm going to do this thing, but don't take of any of the spoils of war. But what we know in Joshua chapter 7 is that Achan saw. We know that Achan coveted or desired. And then we also know that Achan took everything that he saw. And what's he do? He goes and he buries it under his tent. He says, more for me, more for me. I'm going to bury it under my tent. <laughs> in very short order. Joshua calls Achan and his whole family out in front of the children of Israel. And he says, what have you done? What have you done? Now God is against all of us. And so here's what God judged, the consequences. God sets Achan, his whole family, his children, his sons, his daughters, his, his animals, everything he has, even his tent. They stone him, stone his whole family, and then they burn them all. And then they bury them all in the stones with which they were stoned. Oh, God's pretty serious about this thing called temptation and lust. You think about Ananias and Sapphira. 
In Acts chapter 5, you remember all the people were coming and they were selling all their possessions. The church was in unity. They had all things in common and they were selling everything they had. And then in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of the property. But you know the story? They hold back a part of the piece. See, it wasn't a physical desire. It was a desire for more money. They held back a part of the price. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Why? Because they were drawn away and enticed of their own lusts. It was different for each one of these situations in Scripture. But the consequences were terrible. Adam and Eve, we know innocence was lost forever. Adam's sin was imputed to every person. Physical death was introduced. Eve was condemned and said that she would have difficulty in childbearing. Adam was to work by the sweat of his brow rather than keep the garden. The serpent was made to crawl on his belly. When you think of David, the sword, Nathan the prophet says, David, the sword is going to rise up in your own house and evil will never depart. And you think about his sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, every one of them died a horrific, violent death. And what else? The little child that had already been born, that had been conceived because of temptation and the lure of lust, that child that had been born, God required that child's life. Oh, also, what about this? You remember David takes Bathsheba from Uriah the Hittite. Nathan says, God's going to take all your wives and give them to other men so that everybody in Israel can see what happens to your wives. Oh my goodness, the consequences are are, are overwhelming. Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. Achan and his family burned. Ananias and Sapphira, I was thinking about this. Peter, we were talking about this. Peter, Ananias, doesn't even get the opportunity to answer for his sin. Do you read that? If you read that passage in Acts chapter 5, this is crazy. Like when we get tempted and we sin, we're like, God, I'm so sorry. God, please forgive me. There was none of that for Ananias, right? Peter tells Ananias his sin. He says, hey, you've not lied to men. You've lied to God. He drops dead. Three hours later, the Bible says, his wife, unbeknownst to what has happened, she doesn't even know that her husband's dead. She comes in, hey, where's my husband? He says, He says the same thing. Peter says the same thing to Sapphira. She drops dead. Guys, the consequences of temptation and lust are all over the pages of Scripture. You see, uncontrolled lust destroys our character, our relationships, our families, and ultimately, in many cases, our lives. In Galatians chapter 5, turn with me there, and we're going to work our way to wrap this up. In Galatians chapter 5, we see in Scripture... The works of the flesh. Notice in verse number 19, the works of the flesh. The Apostle Paul, writing to these churches of Galatia, he says this in verse number 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And he starts, he says, adultery, fornication, uncleanness. That word uncleanness has a reference to any moral or physical uncleanness. Epithumia, physical or moral uncleanness, is covered in this area here. He goes on, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions and heresies, envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revelings, and the such like, of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. All of these things, these works of the flesh, stem from the problem that occurs 
right here in the heart. They all stem from the heart. Remember, the wise men said, be diligent, protect your heart, because out of it are the issues of life. You see, if the desire is wrong, the action will be wrong. And if the action is wrong, the consequences, folks, are going to be wrong. Oh, we must be focused on what is right. In verse number 17, look two verses behind, verse number 19, Paul says this, The flesh lusteth epithumia against the spirit. It has a strong desire to be heard over the spirit. And then he says these words, And the spirit is against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. So what do we do? How do we wrap a pretty little bow on this idea of temptation and lust? What do we do? Well, last week we were in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 8, and we were talking about anger. In Colossians chapter 3, verse number 5, Paul writes these words. He says, mortify, in other words, put to death, put to death, therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, there's that word again, physically or morally, unclean, and then he says this, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. The word evil concupiscence is the word epithumia. Evil desire, evil covetousness. He says, put it away. He says, put this away. And covetousness, which is idolatry. To the church at Thessalonica, the apostle Paul. It's all through scripture. Guys, I had so many verses that I had to start deleting verses. I only picked a few. In 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse number 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Don't stop there because I know what you're thinking. Well, that's not just temptation and lust. Keep reading. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence. That word lust there is a different word because the word concupiscence is the word epithumia. The word lust is actually the word pathos. And it actually means a suffering, a passion, or an inordinate affection. The, the idea here is what he's saying is not in the excessive or unreasonable epithumia. Don't let an excessive strong desire, don't let an excessive covetousness, don't let an excessive lust bring you down. He says in verse number 5, he says, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. See, for the pagans, for the Gentiles, this type of behavior would be normal. But Paul says, for you as believers, this is not normal. This is not the way that we're to behave. This is not how we're to respond when temptation comes our way. And so the good news this morning is God can give us all the victory over temptation. I really believe that. God can give us the victory over temptation. I wouldn't talk to you about temptation and lust if I didn't believe God had an answer 
for temptation and lust. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to rapid fire you this so that you can write it down. Take home, maybe put up on your fridge, put it in your car, put it on your mirror, put it near your computer so that when you feel tempted, you remember these things. Number one, if you struggle with lust today or you have struggled in the past with lust and it's a problem you have a strong desire for something that you know is not morally or physically correct biblically, then here's what we need to do. Number one, experience God's grace and forgiveness. You're like, is that it? That sounds good. That sounds good. Experience God's grace and his forgiveness. Listen, don't let your past dictate your today or your tomorrow. I have struggled with lust in my past. Many things. Don't let it dictate my today or tomorrow. God is able to give you uh, uh, forgiveness and grace to deal with this. And then number two, I told you rapid fire. Number one, experience God's grace and forgiveness. Number two, flee it. Flee it. You say, oh, that's real easy to say. Well, that's what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2. In 2 Timothy 2, verse number 19. I give you two verses out of this passage. He says, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So that means if you name the name of Christ as your Lord and Savior, Paul's talking to you today. He's talking to me. He says, depart from iniquity. If you drop down a few verses to verse number 22, then you see right there it says, flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. The only way that you're going to follow after those other things is if you flee it. You've got to flee youthful lusts. I, uh, I'm happy to announce to you that the lust of an 18-year-old are not the lust of a 51-year-old. The lust of a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old young man who just gets married, who has a lot of strong desire to provide for his wife and to put, put quite frankly, his job before his family, those lusts have gone. Now, I still want to provide for my wife. I still want to take care of my wife. I still want to love my wife. I just want to do it in a better way. I don't want to sell myself out to the man for the sake of my family. And so we have to understand this. I think about Joseph. How did he respond to Potiphar's wife? You know the story? Potiphar's wife, she saw Joseph, and the Bible says Joseph was a pretty good-looking dude, and we know that because his mom was a beautiful woman. The Bible tells us this. You're like, where do you get all this stuff? From the Bible. From the Bible? Where do you, where, where do you pontificate with all of this stuff? I actually read the Bible. We know that he was a good-looking young man. The Bible even says so. And so we see the story of Potiphar chasing Joseph. She wants to lie with him. I'll let you figure out what she wants to do with him when she lies with him. She wants to lie with him and Joseph, Joseph says, how can I do this sin against my God? He doesn't say, how can I do this sin against me or, my, or Potiphar? He says, how can I do this wickedness against God? And then if you read in Genesis 39, 12, notice this verse. And she caught him by his garment. When temptation comes, it's coming strong. It's coming fast. And she catches him by his garment saying, lie with me. And this is after a daily onslaught. You read the passage. She's after him every time he comes into the house. He's in charge of Potiphar's house. And finally, she catches him by his garment. She not only is saying, lie with me. She grabs him. She says, I'm going to have this. And notice, and he left 
This is what he did. She grabs a garment. That's exactly what he does. He leaves the garment and he, what does it say? And fled and got him out. He says, I'm out of here. I'm not staying around. Now, you know the rest of the sad story in this saga. But Joseph knew that God brought all those things into his life for good. He knew that God allowed that temptation. He knew that God was using that time in his life to strengthen him so that he could use him in his service. Oh my goodness, flee it. Colossians, Paul says, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. I can tell you this, when my affection is set on things above, it's going to be really difficult for me to be tempted of things of the earth. I know that seems like a bunch of Bible babble, but it's true. Oh, Verse number 16 of Colossians 3, I was telling some folks this last week where the Bible says, let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Oh, listen, the more we absorb of him, the better suited you and I are going to be to flee temptation. Number three, not only flee it, but crucify it. Put it to death. You say, well, hold on. Aren't we dead with Christ? Yeah, but we still need to put to death these temptations that seek to strangle us and put a a hold on our life. In Galatians 5, 24, the Bible says this, that they which are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and... What are we crucifying? The affections and, say it. The word there, you guessed it, epithumia. It's the same exact word. Paul says, if you are Christ, you've crucified the flesh with its affections, its desires, and covetous desires. It's been said this, that dead men cannot sin. If we are dead to ourselves, we cannot sin. I put this, if we are truly, uh, Jared, we always talk about sometimes hashtags and things. This is, I, I don't know if this even qualifies. You'll have to tell me later. If we are truly dying to self daily, Sin will no longer be a master over us. If we're truly dying to self daily, sin will no longer be a master to us. It will have no dominion over us. Ephesians 4, 22 and 23 reminds us that we need to put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according, according to deceitful epithumia, lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live after the flesh, the Bible says ye shall die. But if you live through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, the Bible says ye shall live. Oh, I want to live, but I want to live for Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And then the last thing is probably the most important thing. I mean, we can experience God's grace and forgiveness, and we can do our part to flee it and to crucify it. But the only way that we'll experience God's grace, the only way that we'll flee temptation, the only way that we'll learn to rightfully crucify temptation is number four, if we walk in the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit. Verse number 16. Verse number 16, the Apostle Paul says this, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and notice this phrase, and ye shall not. If you walk in the Spirit, Paul says, ye shall not fulfill the lust or epithumia of the flesh. See, the verb here means to keep on walking. When he says walk in the spirit, he's saying keep on trucking. He says you're walking, just keep on walking. Oh yes, if the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, 
that's great. But we need the Holy Spirit to fill us. You know, the Bible talks about be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit. Why? Because we can do nothing of our own selves in our own flesh. Travis and I were talking earlier this week, and he was in a passage of Scripture about there where Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And, uh, you know, the story, he leaves them back, and he says, I'm going to go up here and pray, and I'm going to come, you know, and do this thing. And he comes back, and he finds them what? They're what? And then he says, I'm going to go and pray some more. So he goes forward, and he prays, and he comes back, and they're doing what? (laughs) And he says, guys, I need you to pray. Watch and pray. He said, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. We cannot deal with temptation and lust with our flesh. The only way that we'll appropriately deal with it is to walk in the spirit day by day by day. Oh, God's loving desire is, is for you and I to be overcomers. In Ezekiel 33, 11, he says, Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God says these words. He says, Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Listen, why will we die? Why will we let ourselves succumb to temptation and lust? Oh, let's turn away from it. In chapter 18 of Ezekiel, in chapter 18, verse 31 and 32, he says, Cast away from all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Verse 32, he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. God wants us to live the abundant life. Jesus said that he came to give us that abundant life. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. We know he came to be a minister. But he came so that you and I could live an abundant life. And part of that is to deal appropriately with temptation and lust. I pray that you'll do business with God today. Whether you've struggled with it in the past, maybe you're struggling with it right now, I got news for you. You'll struggle with it again in the future. But hopefully when it comes knocking at our door, we will now know how to deal with it in an appropriate, biblical way. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about our ministry, please go to battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. See you next time.